as we're thinking about the theonomic view of penology, I'd just like to give you a few examples from Scripture, um, from Christ and Paul, which speak favorably of the Old Testament penal requirements. Now, we've already gotten programmatic or um, systematic categorical statements that justify all these things, the penal sanctions, but notice a few particulars. Mark 7, verse 10, regarding capital punishment for those who don't honor their father or mother. Romans 1, 32, regarding capital punishment for homosexuals. Matthew 5, 21 and 22, for... Um, the law that one is guilty of murder is liable to the court. Uh, Luke 19, verses 9 and 10, Zacchaeus was to make restitution for anything he defrauded from others. Uh, Hebrews 10, verse 28, uh, the man who sets aside the Mosaic law, which brought death without mercy at the testimony of two or three witnesses, is mentioned with approval. Therefore, we can conclude from the book of Proverbs the following remarks. It is an abomination for kings to commit wickedness, for a throne is established on righteousness, Proverbs 16, 12. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people, Proverbs 14.34. The righteous will never be shaken, but the wicked will not dwell in the land, Proverbs 10, verse 30. For the execution of justice is terror to the workers of iniquity, Proverbs 21.15. The terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. He who provokes him to anger forfeits his own life, Proverbs 20, verse 2. A king who sits on the throne of justice disperses all evil with his eyes. Proverbs 20, verse 8. Indeed, a wise king winnows the wicked and drives the threshing wheel over them. Proverbs 20, verse 26. Needless to say, the Bible has a lot to say about punishment, civil punishment. And it's just far too easy and facile to dismiss it all by saying we now live in a new age. Well, now, there are some objections to the idea that we should keep all the Old Testament penal sanctions, and I'd like to go through some of them very quickly. The first has been mentioned already, and I'd like to answer that question now. What about Matthew, the fifth chapter, where Jesus said, You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, turn the other cheek. This is verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say unto you, resist not him that is evil, but whosoever smiteth thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, I trust we all believe in contextual interpretation, so let's look at the context. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. Said by whom? It is often assumed that Jesus is talking about Moses. Moses said, but I say. And although this form may be, strictly speaking, uh, parallel to the Old Testament statement, Jesus, it is clear from the context, is not talking about what Moses said, but what the Pharisees and scribes said about what Moses said. And so look at verse 21, and just about all of the antitheses are, are introduced this way. You have heard it said by them of old. You've heard it said by the ancients. That was a common designation for the Pharisees and the scribes, the interpreters or rabbis of the law. And so the elders say, the, the ancients, you've heard it said by them of old. And we know that Jesus is speaking over against the Pharisees because verse 20 says, I say to you, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Now he illustrates, you've heard that they say, but I tell you. You've heard that they say, but I tell you. So in verse 38, where we read, you have heard that it was said, it is to be assumed on the basis of context that Jesus is talking about the rabbinical interpretation of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. By the way, if you have any doubt about this, that we're talking about the rabbinical interpretation and not strictly the Mosaic law. Look at verse 43. You've heard that it was said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. That is not in the Mosaic law. Hate thine enemy was an interpretive remark added by the Pharisees. And so we know very well from the context of verse 20, the form of introduction throughout, and the example of verse 43, that Jesus is indicting the Pharisees. 
turns out the Pharisees held that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth allowed private vengeance. So that if you did something to me, I wouldn't have to take you before the civil magistrate. I could just take my vengeance directly. Jesus said, you've heard them say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You know what they mean by that. But I say to you, don't resist him that is evil. If he smites you on the right cheek, turn to him to the left also. Jesus does not sanction interpersonal civil punishments. God says, avenge not yourselves, for vengeance is mine. And how does God show his vengeance? Through the avenger of wrath. Civil magistrate, exactly. So, it turns out that Matthew 5.38 is a very strong endorsement of the Old Testament outlook over against, ironically, its use to try to undo the Old Testament requirement. All right, what's another objection to um, uh, theonomic penology? In Genesis, the ninth chapter, verse 6, we read that a man who slays another man is to be executed. Now, some have tried to argue that we should restrict capital punishment to this one crime because it's mentioned in the Noahic Covenant. Now, I have difficulty with that. Time won't allow to go through all my notes, so let me just kind of hoof it here for a minute. I have difficulty with that because I'm not sure that God anywhere in the Scripture gives us the right to have a discriminating approach to the covenants of the Old Testament. I would think a covenant theologian especially would be the last one to try to do that. say, well, we follow Noah, but not Moses. We follow Abraham, but not Moses. But Jesus followed it all, every jot and tittle. Paul said, these are all the covenants of the promise. And so we all, who are followers of the promise, and of our father Abraham, walking in his steps of faith, will want to follow all the law of God. Do we make void the law of God by faith? God forbid. Rather, we establish it, Paul says. The Noahic covenant is not the only covenant we follow. We cover... We call, we follow all of God's covenants because we believe that they are part and parcel of one covenant of grace successively revealed with greater fullness throughout the scriptures. Moreover, um, it turns out that those who want to restrict their civil penology to Genesis 9 uh, prove too much, don't they? Because if, we're bound to the, if we are bound to the provisions of the Noahic covenant, then if you look at verse 6 in its context, Notice it includes the prohibition of verse 4, that we are not to eat any creature with its life, that is, its blood. And yet I've yet to find one of these quote-unquote covenant theologians who wants to keep verse 4 today. Moreover, it doesn't prove nearly enough, because clearly Paul gives the sword to the civil magistrate in Romans 13 for the sake of capital punishment. But he's not restricting his thought to the Noahic covenant, because in Romans 13 he also gives the power of taxation to the civil government, and Noah doesn't mention that at all. And so you see this argument is fraught with difficulties. It is contrary to the analogy of faith. It's contrary to explicit teachings of Scripture. It proves too much, and it doesn't prove enough. All right, there's, there's only one other general argument that I'm going to take up because of time here, and that's that when Jesus spoke of divorce in the New Testament, uh, when he dealt with a woman taken in adultery, and when Paul dealt with the incestuous fornicator, in Corinth, they all were silent about capital punishment for these things. Consequently, the New Testament has abrogated by its silence the Old Testament law. Well, there goes infant baptism too. I, I suppose I can say that. Maybe not. The Baptist will not particularly care about that, but, um, but I do. It seems to me that we must assume continuity between Old and New Testament, not assume discontinuity. Because if you assume discontinuity, whatever is not repeated in the New Testament is then abrogated. But I'm not sure you want to assume discontinuity, because then you would have to say that bestiality is all right today, because it's not repeated in the New Testament. You would have to say that in the New Testament, we should not distinguish between manslaughter and murder. 
because that's an Old Testament distinction that is not repeated, as far as I know, in the New Testament. So there's any number of, I think, rather embarrassing illustrations for somebody who wants to take the principle of discontinuity as his assumption rather than continuity. Jesus said, man shall live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And if the word given through angels proves steadfast and unalterable, and if every jot and of the jot and tittle of the law is binding until heaven and earth pass away, then there's every biblical reason to assume continuity. So silence does not abrogate anything. It turns out in the cases that I set before you, the silence is not for the sake of abrogation. It's because the civil punishment is irrelevant. It, is not, it doesn't need to be mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 because he's talking to the church, and the church doesn't execute criminals anyway. If he were talking about the civil magistrate, one might then perhaps expect him to bring this up. But even then, it would, it would be an argument from silence to say that because he didn't, we don't believe. Now, let me give you another illustration of this, the problems of arguments from silence. Um, John is trying to show in his first epistle that Jesus was truly born of a woman. All right, He's trying to show that Jesus was genuine flesh, not just appearance of flesh. It seems to me that if, if John would have mentioned that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, he would have proven his point. But he didn't mention it there, even though it would have been a good argument to use. Obviously, John didn't believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary then. He didn't mention it. It was relevant, and therefore he didn't believe it. Or how about the, uh, the Jerusalem Council, this discussion of circumcision? You notice that they didn't mention that circumcision had been replaced by baptism. By the way, this is an argument that does touch... Uh, Reformed Baptists, because even Reformed Baptists will want to grant there is some connection between circumcision and baptism, or else they deny Colossians the second chapter. But nevertheless, I mean, whether you want to say it replaces it in terms of the covenant sign and, admin and is administered to the same people, uh, I'll leave to another discussion. But they don't mention that connection at the Jerusalem Council. It was a relevant one, and therefore they didn't believe it. No, all of these are absurd conclusions. And by driving that principle of the argument of silence to absurdity, I trust that we'll prevent ourselves from using it in the case of penal sanctions as well. Any questions about Old Testament and New Testament penology now? Jim? What about the case of Ruth and Naomi? I mean, not Naomi, yeah, Ruth and Boaz. Say more. I'm, I'm not, what's the problem? Okay, what's the Yes. And weren't the Israelites forbidden to marry them? Unless they became part of the covenant community. They weren't to, mar weren't to marry them with their pagan gods. That was specified? Well, yeah, Gentiles could become part of Israel. When I come to the seventh commandment, I'm going to try to deal with this question of uh, Israel um, uh, putting off... Uh, the pagan wives uh, at the time of the restoration to the land, and um, I'll try to remember that illustration at the same time and give you something else. It doesn't affect the penal sanctions of the law here as far as I can see, though. George? Have you ever heard the, uh, the answer to the question, if uh, we don't, if we abrogate the Mosaic Covenant, then how do we know that bestiality is wrong uh, from the New Testament. And I heard an answer once from a covenant theologian that we know that from Genesis 2. Uh, the two shall become one flesh, and therefore we can deduce uh, that bestiality is wrong. Is, there, is that a relevant answer? Is that valid at all? 
I should say it's a rather embarrassing answer. The conclusion for anybody who is going to stick to his premises is that therefore the horse and the man become one flesh. I don't like to talk about those sorts of things, but the fact of the matter is that that is not the way you want to argue your case, because your pagan opponent will drive you right to the wall with it. Maybe this is the place to point out that um, our discussion of theonomic distinctives within the Christian church is one thing. I dare say you get out into the secular world and try, to, and try discussing, try defending a position that mediates between the two, theonomy and non-theonomy. And um, I will guarantee you, at least in my limited experience, that um, you will not have a consistent way to hold your ground against dispensationalist and secularist unless you're a theonomist. The only way out is then to become a dialectical theologian. We're inconsistent, and after all, isn't that the very heart of theology, the mystery of self-contradiction? Well, I don't think it is the heart of theology. I think it's the heart of the satanic deception. Although I don't mean to say non-theonomist or satanic. Please, you have to watch what you say these days for fear somebody will misunderstand you. All right. This brings us now to the question of the sword with respect to warfare. Westminster Catechism, Chapter 23, Section 2, on the civil magistrate says, It is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate when called thereunto, in the managing whereof, as they ought especially to maintain piety, justice, and peace, according to the wholesome laws of each commonwealth, so for that end they may lawfully now under the New Testament wage war upon just and necessary occasion. So for that end they may lawfully now under the New Testament wage war upon just and necessary occasion. Here the confession teaches that the magistrate can wage war lawfully in the New Testament in just and necessary conditions. Romans 13, verses 1 to 7, it seems to me, would teach us that the war powers of the state are an extension of the police power of the state over its citizenry. Uh, that is also argued. I, I'm going to be very brief in this, and I, you know why, and so I won't apologize anymore. John Murray in Principles of Conduct, page 113, and in the last edition of Bettner's The Christian Attitude Toward War, page 45, uh, both point this out, that the state is obligated to praise and protect the righteous, that is, those who are outwardly righteous and law-abiding, and therefore the right of the state to engage in warfare is the right of the state to extend its police powers to protect the righteous, which is to say a just war is a defensive war. It's for the sake of defending the righteous. The defensive character of the police power is taught in Romans 13, and if the war powers of the state are an extension of that police power, therefore they must be defensive, even on the international plane. Just war, consequently, means the promotion of the good, and that means the following of God's law. A just war, says John Murray in Principles of Conduct, page 179, is a war which reestablishes justice. War is ethically neutral in itself. It can be justly used and it can be immorally used. The question is to what end is it being used? Now Calvin and Augustine both said that the real evil of war is not the outward clash so much as it is the attitude of men therein. It's the attitude of men that makes war unjust. In the last resort, war must be, uh, excuse me, war must be in the last resort 
and therefore it must be defensive. In Deuteronomy, the seventh chapter, you will notice a special kind of warfare mentioned. There we read of being put under the ban, chrim, all right? Uh, the Hebrew word for the ban. A special type of warfare, holy warfare, putting a nation under the ban. Now this is a special curse, please note, and it amounts to mass capital punishment. When God calls for Kareem warfare, when he calls for the ban to be brought against the people, he is bringing mass execution upon them for their sins. That is a special curse. It is a positive command, and it has a unique role in the history of redemption. God does not authorize us to engage in holy war. He does not authorize us to engage in the ban, in Kareem warfare. God alone can tell us who among the nations of the earth, is to be executed in that way. God alone can give instructions for one people to wipe out another people. Nobody can claim that right to fight a holy war without divine direction. However, the, the Old Testament also gives us instructions not about Kareem warfare or the ban, but it gives us general instructions for warfare as well. Um, Deuteronomy 25, for instance, talks about warfare to justify the righteous. In the book of Judges, you will read about warfare in response to harassment, that is, over against um, aggression. So, I'm, I'm, pull, I'm trying to show you that there's a difference, and you must guard it, between the positive law of God about holy war, Kareem warfare, the ban, and then general warfare of a defensive nature. Now, it turns out that Deuteronomy 20, that's what you want to write in your notes, especially to study, Deuteronomy 20 treats both Kareem and defensive warfare gives principles that apply to all warfare. This is not only holy war, it's also defensive war. Deuteronomy 20 says, you are to offer a peaceful settlement to these people before you fight them. You offer that they can come into slavery rather than being fought against. And then secondly, only the men, if the, if the city resists, only the men are to be executed afterwards. And the slave women could, at that, according to Deuteronomy 21, could marry into the covenant community. Now, I would suggest, uh, just for bibliographical purposes, you might want to look at Calvin's Institutes, Volume 2, page 1499, in the, um, I believe that's the uh, Neal edition. Volume 2, page 1499. Look at Hodge, Volume 3, pages 365 to 366, where both Calvin and Hodge point out that just war must be defensive in this context. Okay, Deuteronomy 20 further teaches us that the battle is to focus on a war between the two armies. It is forbidden to wage war against the land. You are not to destroy the fruit trees, is the specific cultural example given. Non-combatants, women, and the created world, trees, are not to be attacked. And therefore, Deuteronomy 20, while it is couched in the language of an ancient culture, I think teaches us a principle that we are not to engage in what is called total warfare. Nobody has the right to put the ban on some other nation so that its women and fruit trees are destroyed along with the fight against its men. Non-combatants in the created world cannot be attacked. Some things are exempt by the law of God from the ravages of war. All right. I'm not going to say anything more um, about the standards of warfare, but that I think there is a scriptural and confessional case for one 
all warfare today must be defensive in nature, and two, there are standards by which you prosecute a war. To put it to you very easily, the old um, line, all's fair in love and war, is an ungodly way to look at it. God says there are standards that you use in the prosecution even of war. Now, I'm going to try to make a couple of modern applications, and I recognize the controversy involved, all right? Won't do you a bit of good, though, to have some meek and mild mushmouth up here who says, well, maybe, maybe, maybe. <laughs> I'm going to say, I think what this means. Now, if I'm wrong, then please correct me, and we'll all learn from it. But I'm not going to, you know, avoid stepping on some toes, because as we move now into the section of the course dealing with explicit application of the law, it's going to get a little more touchy. And that's the nature of the case. But I, we all came here for that reason, and I hope none here. You're all friends. If I offend you, please correct me. But now look, if all warfare is defensive, then the relevant question becomes today, what constitutes a clear intention to attack you? What constitutes a clear intention to attack you? Who determines that? It's very popular these days to speak of, well, maybe not in this language, but to refer to, in some sense, a domino theory of communist aggression against the United States. All right? If the communists take this land, then, of course, it's another slice of the old bologna or salami, and another slice and another slice, until eventually we're in a lot of trouble. The domino theory. If you let it go over there in Southeast Asia, eventually it's going to be right here in Jackson, Mississippi. I think we as Christians must really ask ourselves whether this, in strictly biblical terms, constitutes a clear intention to attack our country when somebody on the other side of the globe is attacked. Basically, I think that a clear intention to attack comes when there is an invasion of one's territorial boundaries and aggression against, say, your shipping, your ports, your airlines, something like that. That is definite aggression against your country. And that, then, it seems to me, becomes the only justification for war. Knowing how terribly sensitive it is, believe me, from past experience, knowing how terribly sensitive it is, let me simply say that with respect to the most recent example, the war in Vietnam, or the non-war in Vietnam, since we never did declare war, uh, but the combat in Vietnam, if you do not buy the domino theory, or... Maybe if you buy it, you nevertheless should conclude that that does not constitute a clear intention to attack us and our territorial boundaries. It thus seems to me, therefore, that the skirmish in Vietnam was not a defensive one. Unless one's talking about the defense of our financial interests in the United States. And consequently, I believe that as Christians, one could make a case, although I'm not going to try to impose this view on anybody, one could make a case that selective conscientious objection would have been legitimate in such a circumstance. Now, let's say you don't think that it applies to Vietnam. Fine. But I hope all of us as Calvinists will defend the principle of selective conscientious objection. Uh, it was common, and those were my college years, and so, I mean, you're talking to somebody where, I mean, the rubber hit the road. I was very well aware of the arguments pro and con. And uh, very early in it uh, was one of the most avid supporters of the war in Vietnam. So don't think you're talking to some wild-eyed liberal pacifist or something like that. You're talking about somebody who believes in submission to the, to the powers that be, who believes in the just use of war, and who at one time believed in the war in Vietnam. Um, but whether you do or not, I do believe we all should say that 
it is right for a man to distinguish between what wars he will engage in and what wars he will not engage in. During the time of the skirmish in Vietnam, this country uh, took the position that a man who wished, who wished to be a conscientious objector had to be a conscientious objector unreservedly, categorically. He had to believe in no warfare whatsoever. And yet our confession teaches that the magistrate can wage war upon just and necessary occasion. Now again, forgetting the illustration of Vietnam, and maybe you agree, maybe you disagree, the fact is that was wrong for our government to hold that a man could not discriminate between a just and an unjust war, that he had to, without conscience, submit to the civil magistrate. Right. Now I'm going to go one step further. Um, let, let me get all the offensive material out and then we'll discuss it. I'm going to go one step further and tell you that I as a Christian have real qualms about nuclear warfare. And it's not because, again, I'm some idealist who doesn't know the type of world we live in. But especially such things as uh, neutron bombs and so forth do what it seems to me the Bible teaches we ought not to do. It kills non-combatants and wages war against the land. The Bible explicitly says you are to wage war against your enemy's army, not against his women, not against their women, and not against their fruit trees, not against God's creation. You're not to make war against the ground, okay, and you're not to make war against those who are non-combatant. Now, of course, I recognize today in some countries women are combatants, and I do not believe that they are spared thereby by the Old Testament law. In mentioning women there, the assumption, I trust nobody will challenge this, was that women were not engaging in the warfare, that their, that their men marched off to war. Well, you don't kill them, you kill their men if it's a just war. Now, if that is true, if these principles can be applied today, it does seem to me that some things are to be exempt from the ravages of war, and because nuclear war arms are non-controllable, even as saturation bombing is non-controllable, and herbicides are obviously non-controllable, that we do not have the right to use them. God alone can put the world under the ban. We cannot put the world under the ban. All right. I deem myself a conservative in politics, I deem myself a conservative in theology, I think I have a rather hard-nosed approach to ethical matters, and yet I am led to the ironic position of agreeing with what are in some people's minds, quote-unquote, liberal conclusions, that certain wars we ought to have conscientious objection to, and with the prosecution of war, we ought to avoid the use of nuclear arms. And I realize you're going to have some questions, so <laughs> it's all yours. Gray. I was just looking in terms of the selective uh, conscientious, <coughs> conscientious objection. It seems that in Deuteronomy 20, regardless of whether you even object to the war on principle grounds or not, there's a whole list of people that, that just don't come. It says if you just married somebody, if you just built a new house, if you just had a new vineyard, or if you, you're just engaged, or uh, if you just don't want to go into war, yeah. you are exempt. It's, I think it's true that there are further passages of Scripture that give us uh, principles for the prosecution of war. That is, that some men should be exempt. Those newly married, um, I believe those who are in, in the Lord's service, such as the priest would have been by analogy in the Old Testament, so forth and so on, can be exempt. Um, by the way, I think that points out why warfare in the old, how warfare in the Old Testament was basically defensive. Because you see, the whole point is well, let me give you a very clear example. Just try today enlisting a full-scale army to engage in an aggressive, I mean an openly admitted aggressive war against somebody else. 
you will not be able to raise the army. There are not, I mean, there are some people who enjoy warfare. I mean, there's some personality types who want to be soldiers. And in a sense, we ought to be thankful for that because not many of us like that, and there are some who will do it. Uh, but when my homeland <laughs> is at stake, you see, when, when um, some country's attacking my country and threatening my family and the well-being of my nation, that's another matter. Then you see people can rise to the occasion. But throughout history, people have had scruples uh, about aggressive warfare and losing your life simply for the aggrandizement of the man who is in power so that he's going to get a lot more gold or pigs or whatever it is they were winning in those days. So what? I don't want to lose my life for that sake, but I will lose my life to defend my wife and children and that sort of thing. And so there, if a man didn't want to go to war, um, he wasn't to be constrained to do so. When would a man want to go to war to defend his homeland? John. In the event that we are attacked, and we qualify this by the fact that we acknowledge the sovereignty of God, but we're talking about a just war, we are attacked by a foreign land using nuclear weapons. What is to be our recourse, realizing are we to then say we accept our annihilation and just fight back? Well, oh, now wait a minute. Remember that. Defense against nuclear warfare is not the same as using nuclear warfare. In other words, if I have an anti-missile missile that, uh, that attempts to detonate an atomic bomb in midair rather than letting it reach my country, that doesn't mean I'm engaging in atomic warfare. So the recourse that we could, we could then invasion, we, we would not retaliate with nuclear arms. Now, I grant you, I am no strategist of war. Uh, I think you all realize that. I'm a philosopher. The worst, you know, when it comes to uh, matters of uh, that sort of thing. But I do think that there are moral principles that should be... In, uh, what I would challenge is somebody who is interested in this sort of thing to take the biblical principles and say, now God never leaves us in a situation where we must sin and so forth. So what do we do? Now, I, I'm just commonsensically, it seems to me that we can have all the sophisticated military might in the world to prevent ourselves from being attacked with nuclear warheads, and yet we can retaliate with less than nuclear warheads. I mean, it doesn't seem to me that it's impossible to envision that. But I'm sure a lot more sophisticated answer could be worked out by somebody who will study, you know, the facts of the situation. Remember the triangle, how the goal of ethics requires knowing something about the world and that sort of thing? Well, somebody who's a lot more world-wise about these sorts of things would be the ideal person to take the biblical standards and try to make a good case out of it. He would also be doing something which nobody else is doing today. So really, too, World War II, even the Allies bombed Germany. They were bombing civilians. That's right. It was saturation bombing. So, like, we're just not a host of problems. I mean, difficulties don't come against Yeah. The Russians attack. They just, you know, they're taking their missile sites mm -hmm. where they're armed. That's right. Can I, um, can, can I be so uh, jingoistic as to extol the, um, the honors of the South with respect to a war of recent vintage in this country? <laughs> Did you know that there were principled Christian men during the war between the states, which I believe is the war of northern aggression. <laughs> no, and that's, that's, that's salient in the point here. Uh, just for that reason, there were people who supported the war effort of the South to the degree that it was fought on southern soil. And when southern armies marched up as far as Gettysburg, there were people who would not support that because they said it has now become an aggressive war. 
That's northern property. Let them do what they want in Gettysburg, as long as they stay out of our homeland. You see, that, that resonates to the heart of an ethicist, the person so principled that he say, I believe in defensive war and no further. So get out of Gettysburg, and if anything, get back down to there to Vicksburg so we wouldn't have lost the war. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, the pagan north coming down and fighting in here in the south, that is tongue-in-cheek. Um, Sherman, you remember, I hope you all remember, this is not so old as to forget Sherman's march to the sea after he dis he ravaged the south and burned the land and killed people in the way. I mean, he just made a trail to the sea. Do you know who it was in history who said war is hell? It was Sherman who said that. And as a good friend of mine who's done some work in these points has, uh, has commented, Sherman said war is hell and set out to prove it. There are principles by which Christian and just men wage war. I'm not against war, but I'm against, I am against doing it immorally. And I respect the southern position with respect to that war. It was a defensive war and not fought at all cost. Jim. Got, got several, and they, I don't know, they, they may become very relevant. Um, is, your, is your difficulty with the, uh, what they call the neutron warhead because it's a nuclear warhead. My difficulty is that it's indiscriminate, and as a matter of fact, it destroys the vegetation. Well, to some, well sort of. Uh, it's usually been heralded as being a, a big, nasty weapon. While it is an enhanced radiation weapon, it, uh, the radiation is, does not hang around anywhere near as long as a, as a regular uh, traditional nuclear uh, type of warhead, and they can get them down to a very, very low yields for use over just a battlefield area. I understand that, but it destroys all living things yeah, in its it course. Now, uh, we, well, that's the point, though, yeah, Jim. We get, into a, we get into a sticky situation because we're talking about the, our ability to defend ourselves, you know, what we ought to do and things like that. I'm an ammunition officer, okay. and uh, we've got a serious problem in this country. We do not have the conventional capability to defend ourselves against an attack. Now we don't. Right. Well, why is that? Because well, we have become dependent upon... Right. But the right. point being, would it, would it be an ethical situation for me, as an ammunition officer, to involve myself in the, uh, the supply of tactical nuclear warheads to the battlefield, knowing full well that unless they're delivered, we're going to lose? Yeah, that's a sticky question, that's for sure. Because we just simply don't have the missiles to be able to fight off on a conventional battlefield the the potential number of tanks and other hardware that they could throw at us. I suppose, again, you might um, you might conceive of yourself delivering defensive capability into the hands of your superiors and say, for the defense of my homeland, uh, I agree with that. But taking the offensive and um, attempting to wipe them out now in this um, allegedly ungodly way, would, I can't engage in. You would see that... Uh, chemical and biological munitions would follow it. Follow oh, yes, yes. See, that, that's a, that has a clear analog to the Old Testament law, the principle of not waging war on the land. It's just, it's just, it's just interesting, just in going through the, the ammunition course, there is something that even in the, the instructors who deal with this stuff all the time, that it's just, the human, something about the human nature just reacts to that whole thing. That's an interesting oh, just, remark, yeah. It just sends chills up your back just to discuss the whole yeah. issue and see the effects of the stuff. Now, it sends, I want to I add to that, it sends chills up and down my back to think that somebody would not think these things through completely so that we do know. I, I'm very much in favor of a very strong defense budget in this country. 
And I have good Christian friends, Richard Mao and others, who think that's just terrible. And I, I mean, I remember an afternoon Mao and I walking up and down the streets of Baltimore just going over and over and over, you know, how much money we spend on health, education, war, and, and welfare over against money for uh, uh, the military. And uh, it, was, it was an interesting conversation. But, I mean, they're sensitive to that. And I'm not. I mean, I believe we ought to be just as, as armed to the teeth, if need be, for the sake of our survival. But I do have principled objections, you see, in a, in a, in a, I'm only going so far in, in a rather categorical way, to types of warfare that are not discriminating. And I'd like somebody to go f further than I can go and, and do something with that. Go ahead. First off, I'll give both you can answer them with their order. Uh, you talk about personal defense. What does that say then about defense treaties, such as we have with Australia, CETO, and some of the NATO alliances? I'm glad you asked that. Go ahead. Is in regards to the whole issue of women and what the, new, the Old Testament would have to say concerning that, a situation we may face very shortly, and there's no way you can say, especially with what I know is presently transpiring within at least the Army, uh, you cannot say that women will not be on the battlefield. Yeah. When not yet, but when they begin to draft women, and that means those of us in here, I don't have any, but our daughters, yeah. should we as Christians then submit to that? Or is that unbiblical? Oh, I think it's unbiblical. Yes. Because that's, that is a real situation that is going to be coming up in the believers that confront. It's an unhappy sort of thing to say, but I think draft resistance is, in fact, a Christian necessity sometimes. And if, and if I were forced to fight an unjust war, I would have no recourse but what? To obey God rather than men. But does draft necessitate that you must fight in a war? Suppose, the, the, the part of warfare doesn't belong to women at all. And the very possibility that they would be engaged in combat is sufficient, it seems to me, to say that my, my daughters will not go. Um, now, on the other question about should we have defense treaties, this is, this is a great subterfuge morally. Uh, it really is. You see, if it is wrong to do something, it is also wrong to enter into a treaty to do something. Uh, I remember we, we had a, uh, a debate when I was in seminary in ethics class. Um, I went to a seminary where that sort of thing was looked well upon. And uh, we had uh, uh, people debating, you see, the rightness or wrongness of the Vietnam War. And uh, the fellow who was debating the point that it should be a defensive war, and this is not, his opponent, granted, it is not a defensive war in the strict sense that the Bible or the Confession would allow for a defensive war. However, we have a moral obligation because we've given our word, we've entered into a treaty. And the person debating against that, I thought, was right to the point when he said, you can't enter into an agreement to do that which is wrong to begin with. One cannot exonerate his adultery by saying, but we've got a compact. You see, this woman and I, we signed an agreement where we were going to have these sexual privileges with each other, and therefore it's all right now. If it is wrong to be engaged in a war that is not against your territorial limits, then it is wrong to enter into a compact that says you will do so. Now, on the other hand, you say, well, what does that do to all the little nations of the world that can't defend themselves? Well, what that says to them is that they aren't able to defend themselves as separate entities. They ought to join a nation that they can then, can then defend them, so that hypothetically, if South Vietnam were to have become one of the states of the American states, then of course we would have had every right to defend our homeland, and that would have become our homeland. But short of that, I mean, trying to retain your autonomy, but to have all the benefits of the superpowers around you, strikes me as uh, trying to have your cake and eat it too, and it isn't right. Glad you, um, oh, I thought you were raising your hand. I was. Well then. I was just thinking about uh, the very nature of the struggle there, the conflict, 
multiplying up the foreign national relations things like that. Yeah. A part of it is to have the last bastion of capitalism engage itself in military conflicts with extended logistics lines and upset their national uh, livelihood and things like that. By just such a struggle as Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. it's really succumbing to the uh, to the revolutionary conflicts to engage in battles like that. Then when the Pueblo was taken, and right after the Pueblo was taken, they shot down a reconnaissance aircraft for mm-hmm. uh, 20 or 30 men on board or something like that. It seemed like at that time the Koreans were really trying to get the United States from New Orleans, and there were a lot of people running around saying, God, oh, jump in there and tear us a tool out of the and then adding disaster upon disaster. Yeah, it's true. I think MacArthur was pleading on his deathbed with Johnson not to become involved in uh, Southeast Asia. There are other ways to fight the, the conflict. Uh, those are my understanding of Marxist countries that economically they can't uh, carry on the struggle for an extended period without our support. We certainly have to be extending that kind of desire. Great time the Koreans are really trying to get the United States from New Orleans. There are a lot of people running around saying, God, you jump in there and tear us a tool out of the life. And they've been adding disaster upon disaster. Yeah, it's true. I think MacArthur was pleading on his deathbed with Johnson not to become involved in uh, Southeast Asia. There are other ways to fight the, the conflict. Uh, those are my understanding of Marxist countries that economically they can't uh, carry on the struggle for an extended period without our support. We certainly have to be extending all kinds of desire for trade credits and yeah. technology and things that they can uh, distribute their resources other places to. Uh, Everybody hear that clearly? That's called, that's called using the liberality God has blessed your country with to make sure that other people don't engage in war that depends upon our credit. That's a very good point. I was hoping you might have something to say in this, Wayne, because I realize you know, you've done a little bit of study of this subject, and uh, it's, a, it's an awkward one. But if we, if we are biblical Christians, we're going to want to apply God's word to all areas of life, and not when it becomes sensitive only. I mean, n- and not stopping when it becomes sensitive. George. Keep Yeah, well, I just mentioned what it seems to me that amounts to. What they're pleading is that they become part of the country whose help they need. As they're asking, would you please annex us as part of your country? We wish to become the 50, you know, first state or what have you. Uh, Seems to me it would be because short of that, you're not really defending your own land. You're defending somebody else's land and thereby meddling in another country's business. And you say, but they want you to meddle in that business. The question is whether you have the right to take innocent human lives, which is what all the men in this room are, and make us forfeit those lives or threaten to forfeit those lives in the defense of a country that we may not want to do that for. On the other hand, if Southeast Asia, or maybe that's not a good illustration, let's say, you know, whatever, this country is engaged in war, they may appeal to us to send mercenary soldiers. I can understand my so associating with the... uh, the plight of this small country that I might willingly and personally decide to go. But now whether the government can use the coercive power of the sword to make me go is a separate question. That's where it comes to the question of the morality or immorality of drafting men for less than defensive purposes. What, what about if uh, they're not invading our, our 
boundaries of our homeland, but they are invading a, an economic resource uh, that we're that we're dependent upon. Well, that would be a wicked thing to go to Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia and fight them for the oil when you've got uh, just uh, trillions of people, or thousands of years of gas sitting under these uh, salt that off the Louisiana coast. It's just a pernicious and wicked thing. I think what he's suggesting, Jerry, is that um, our financial benefit does not amount to a just war. Well, uh, let's let's suppose you know, that, uh, that the resource was was ours. That we fought a war over it and gained the territory. Uh, Wait a minute. Well, you you mean we engaged in aggressive war and that became our territory? Oh, well, for example, let's take the Panama Canal. Okay, we depend upon the Panama Canal for uh, certain uh, certain uh, shipping. For convenience. For convenience, okay. And we uh, engage in a war to take over that, t uh, you know, previous war. And, and own that property, okay. And then that's, uh, we give it a certain autonomy and then it's threatened. Do we have a, do we have a right to uh, defend it? Depends on if we're Indian givers or not. I thought you said we gave it a certain autonomy. If we gave it its autonomy and we meant it, then we gave it what? Its autonomy. No, then you can't go back and say, we take it back now, <laughs> King's X. Guess we didn't mean that. No, I, I just I can't see that, frankly. Well, okay. Suppose, uh, suppose the communists take over and they're threatening us on all sides, but they haven't really invaded our boundaries. But yet, they're, they're invading lands that touch, touch very close to us. Okay. Do we have any uh, recourse uh, to stop them from you know, getting too close for comfort? If that amounts to a clear intention to aggress against us, yes. But I just have a hard time saying that the fact that they invaded Mexico means that they're invading us. So in other words, we can, we, we can invade them all. No, in other words, a clear intention to aggress is, is uh, standard scholarly language in this regard, where you can discern that they are moving in order to uh, to attack against you. Let's take the Communist Manifesto. Isn't that uh, grounds enough? No, it's not grounds enough. Mm -mm. In, in the first place, I mean, if I write down, you know, in order to take over the world, what I want my friends to do is this, all this, okay? And now, 150 years from now, People who, in some sense, swear allegiance to this dictator Bonson, you know, are moving into Mexico, and somebody pulls out this Bonson manifesto and says, "Ah, see." In the end, he always wanted to get the United States. You know, you don't know whether, in fact, they want to go as far as my plan said, when they're going to do so, under what conditions, and so forth. It may be that by that time they're going to say, "Look, let's be reasonable about it. Why don't we just get together and form one nation here?" You don't know there's going to be warfare. No, the Communist Manifesto is not what is usually called a clear intention to aggress. A clear intention to aggress is sinking one of our ships, invading one of our ports, bombing one of our cities, um, landing upon our beaches. I mean, that's what is a clear intention to aggress, okay? Sending a nuclear bomb in the direction of the United States, that's a clear intention to aggress. But aiming, you know, your nuclear warheads in the direction of the United States, having um, nuclear submarines in the Pacific Ocean, and that sort of thing, does not amount to a clear aggression to aggress. Chris? Um, would you consider it in World War II as a righteous war? And if not, then were we right now? We were right to invade Germany because we were fighting a war with them, and that's what it took to bring the Germans to their knees. 
that was a defensive war. You just, oh yes. But no, wait a minute. You ask. You ask. No, no. I would not have engaged in saturation bombing. I would have. I would have bombed the factories that made. Uh, here I'm talking about what I would have done, as though I was Eisenhower or something. You know, I. Um, <laughs> I would have bombed the railroads. You know, and um, all those avenues and industries by which the war effort was sustained in Germany are legitimate targets of attack. And of course, if they have fruit trees growing in their bomb factories <laughs> and women working there, then that then that becomes just game because that is part of the of the uh, military effort but to destroy their cities completely and uh, the means of livelihood for the people and to kill innocent citizens I just don't think the, the Bible condones they ask about World War two and here we get into a very tricky thing because you have to play the part of historian um, you people who like myself were forced to work through this whole question of war and so forth and what we as Christians should say and what witness we ought to make and how we personally would respond if we were called upon um, did, you know, that kind of historical research and I hope you're not surprised to learn you see there was draft resistance during the first world war too there was draft resistance during the war between the states in the north interestingly enough because you see that was an aggressive war and everybody in the north knew it was an aggressive war being fought on southern soil so draft resistance is not at all a new and somehow hippie subculture kind of thing in this country it has long and where very well established roots however now I'm I'm arguing the part of an interpretive historian here this is not an ethicist it's not thus saith the Lord we're getting even further out on the periphery here so please, if you disagree with me, know where I stand. It's not all that important for present purposes. My own judgment is that Franklin Delano Roosevelt knew very well what would happen if he wanted to engage in the Second World War, what became the Second World War. He wanted to enter into that skirmish without it being a defensive conflict. And that's why, strange as it may be, he knew hours in advance of the attack on Pearl Harbor that Pearl Harbor would be attacked. And isn't that strange? The telephone call couldn't get through to tell us. I realize the indictment that is of Roosevelt, and I'm sorry, um, but I think that was terrible to lose innocent human lives, if it's true, in order that we could then justify it as an attack upon one of our ports. It was then an attack upon one of our ports, and that did justify entering the war. The question is whether it was a subterfuge to do so. Yeah, I don't believe that the atomic, uh, uh, the use of the atomic bomb was right. That's right. It is a human judgment that it is a human judgment that it saved countless of thousands of lives and, and shortened the war. Uh, and probably it did save countless of our lives. It didn't save very many innocent lives of those who were bombed and who now bear even today the scars and defects of atomic bombing. It's pretty hard, even as an American, to see the pictures of what happened there in Hiroshima and not to feel a little guilty. Oh, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty for no. it either, but what I'm saying is there's something inside you that says, my goodness, what, what justify one people doing this to another people? It's dreadful. Innocent people. Babies. Okay? And so it saved a lot of our lives. It didn't save many of theirs. John? Well, Though Germany never did attack our territorial boundaries, but we take it that the intent was going to be that they would you have to remember that the, the Japan and, and Germany uh, constituted a, um, a combined axis of power in the Second World War and to fight against one was to fight against the other it just so happened they had their separate territories of war they, uh, they bombed our uh, that ship the ocean liner 
That's right. Yeah. What was the name of that thing? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> David, let's let's try to bring this back now to not just historical questions, but now specifically on on, on the principles that we're talking about. Okay. Regarding the last statement, uh, I, as I understand it, we did not declare war on Germany until they declared war on us, which is about three days after Pearl Harbor. So immediately then. Uh huh. Uh huh. Okay. But, uh, I was going to ask. You said that uh, it was. At first, you said that you would be. You sided with the Southerners who thought when they got as far as Gettysburg that they were really going to be on their balance. Yeah. Why then would you say that it was all right to go into Germany since that was necessary to bring them to their knees and not? Uh, the difference of a hundred years of warfare and the development of warfare. It was not necessary to stop the North to be in Gettysburg, but it was necessary to stop the proliferation of bombs and so forth and uh, uh, the, develop, uh, the making of um, military airplanes and that sort of thing in Germany. Now, the difference is not a difference of principle. It's a difference of the application because the facts have changed. Uh, but I don't believe that we should have gone in um, and killed innocent lives in Germany, but we ought to have stopped the war machine in Germany. There was no war machine in Gettysburg that anybody wants to credibly argue for, I don't think. Okay. Why is it that the women are considered not fair game in war? Why is it that they're considered like innocent of wrongdoing when their men go to war? But they can be just as much as supportive of it. They can, they're supporting the whole front. They're taking over things so that their men can go to war. They're just as guilty. It's not just men that, that are aggressive. The women just aren't going out there and shooting. Well, that's the salient point. It's the people who are out there shooting that we're worried about. We're not worried about... That's right, and that's my point. Uh, I, the, I believe, just about anybody should buy, too, that culturally the reason the women were exempt is because they were not combatants. That's why, you see, what's the... Th the principle of, of theonomic approach to the Old Testament. You read it in its cultural setting and you, you, you find what the principle is that's illustrated and you try to apply it. And as I see it, that is to say non-combatants are not fair game in war. And uh, the reason for that is because there wouldn't be a war without combatants. We only fight the combatants and when they have been crushed, or better yet, you know, stopped uh, without crushing them, then the war is over. There's no need to kill their women and children unless you want to humiliate them and make them suffer. But you see, that's where I think Calvin and Augustine were right. It's the motives for warfare that are so wicked, not simply the outward clash. Uh, in the Vietnamese War, we saw a lot of uh, non, uh, a lot of people, men, women, and children, wielded, wielded machine guns. That's right. I'm thinking about uh, William Calley, who uh, was uh, convicted of uh, war crimes. Uh, and of course, we don't know the specifics of that situation, but. Uh, would that uh, was it ethical for them to uh, convict him if indeed uh, he was uh, he, he killed uh, men, women, uh, and children that uh, were uh, wielding uh, weapons? And that's really a tough question for two reasons, because there's two moral principles that have to be weighed, and not in a hierarchical sense, but there's two things that must be remembered as bearing on the subject. And then there's the whole question of the facts of the matter. And um, even those who claim to be experts here differ as to what the facts of the matter were. So, I mean, somebody standing off in Jackson, Mississippi, lecturing is not in a very um, enviable position to try to, to make a judgment on the facts. 
But given that these women and children, although it's possible that women and children, and it happened, uh, engaged in warfare, given the fact that they were not then engaging in warfare and there was no clear reason to think that these people were engaging in warfare, that was the killing of innocent civilians. And that is, uh, by the Geneva Accord, uh, considered a war crime uh, by all civilized countries. Uh, but now here what you have is a man allegedly following instructions of a superior officer. Okay? Does, the, does the responsibility become that of the superior officer rather than Callie's? Or is it his responsibility? And that's where I think ethically the, de the debate lies. At what point does a soldier, once he's entered into a war, has selective conscientious objection? I will not follow this order because, as best as I can see, it's an order that violates the Geneva Accord. And it's it is, in fact, a, a crime against humanity because it is waging war upon non-combatants. It's a real tough one. I really think, at the e in the end, that a soldier has to have extremely good grounds to differ with his commanding officer. Because the whole point is, soldiers are not privy to all sorts of information that is allegedly the basis for the orders given them. Okay, so uh, let us say that it was a situation where this man had no way of knowing whether his commanding officer um, had sufficient information to justify this command. Now, if it was that situation, I'm saying if it was that situation, and he went through with it, and it turned out that it was wrong, I would then, it, seemed, it seems to me, that the commanding officer should be held accountable. If, on the other hand, after due consideration and weighing all the facts and being cautious and doing the best he can to be obedient and yet still having what seems to be insurmountable evidence that it was the killing of the innocent, I should say it becomes the responsibility of the individual soldier to disobey the order of his commanding officer. Do you understand? I, I realize that's a touch, touchy thing. You go into a court of law, it's hard to prove those sorts of things. But I think a soldier would have to say, I was willing to obey, and I understand that I don't have a right to all the information necessary to obey in every situation, but there was insurmountable prima facie evidence that this was the killing of the innocent. And therefore, um, I would not do so. And as it turns out, I really think the trial of uh, Callie had an awful lot to do with the political mood of the country and not altogether to do with the facts of the situation. And so to that degree, as with Richard Nixon, I'm afraid people suffered for the offenses of other people and not simply and strictly for their own situation. Yeah, there's a little uh, tension between a couple things that you've said. That's not surprising. It's a hard you, subject. Uh, mentioned the fact that you thought that the factories were fair game. Yeah. Yet Fa factories, factories producing military goods. I didn't mean factories in general. Okay, but see, this is where it gets to be a little bit Technically, they're not combatants. The people that work in those factories. Oh, yes, they are. How do you consider them combatants if they're not there? They are supplying the military goods for those who are actually pulling the triggers. What constitutes, then, a factory producing military hardware? Well, that's, a, that's one of those questions Christian ethicists have to answer. Is a ball bearing factory a legitimate target? Is a tire factory a legitimate target? Supposing they're making both military and civilian tires. Well, it's not really all that absurd to say, no, those aren't uh, military factories until they start making tanks. And when the ball bearings and, and, and the rubber start going into tanks, then we bomb the tank factory. Well, you can make all the ball bearings and the tires you want. Just don't bring them together in the form of tanks. Right? I mean, again, I know that's not sophisticated, but I mean, there's a certain obviousness to it, too. Let's try to finish out uh, one last thing before we have to quit tonight. I realize that this whole issue of penology in war is one of the most controversial, um, and I hope, if nothing else, even if you disagree with what somebody else has said tonight or 
even if you disagree with what I've said tonight, that, um, that you will appreciate the opportunity to discuss these things, and I hope you'll take into account what has been said. That now ends our section on social ethics. We have had three sections on this course. Are you, are you able to change gears fast enough that we can just introduce the next subject matter? I remind you, we only have two more weeks of this course, and probably um, the next two weeks will be very similar to tonight. There'll be um, a lot of specific issues raised, um, the attempt to bring God's Word to bear on them, and some discussion of those matters. In a sense, this gets into the more um, interesting side of it because we're, we're leaving strict principles, if you will, and procedures for ethical reasoning and trying to actually get into it and, and do the reasoning. We have studied the question of um, meta-ethics. In our first night, we studied the philosophy of ethics, what ethics is, uh, schools of thought, and so forth. We talked about the conflict between unbelieving systems and believing systems with respect to absolutes and relevance. Is it all vaguely familiar in your minds? Okay. And then we studied the question of goal, motive, and standard as the three primary perspectives on ethics. Okay, here we had, under meta-ethics, the whole question of the square of opposition between Christian and non-Christian systems. Under goal, motive, and standard, you can remember this in terms of the triangle. See how easy this course becomes? It's just a matter of knowing your geometric shapes. Okay, and now we've had a section on social ethics in particular, and uh, we, as you can see here, talked about Christ and culture, church and state, and the use of the sword. And now what I want to do is an exposition of God's law as a way of getting into particular ethical questions, an exposition of the law. Okay, so now we're going to apply what we've learned up above to particular cases. And that's what we want to do for a few minutes tonight and then for the last six hours that we have together. Anybody have any questions as to generally where we are? I've stood back and just done a, a sweep of the whole course up to this point, the three major subjects we've taken up. Well, the question may arise, if we're going to study particular questions of ethics and try to apply our Christian ethical system to these matters, why are we going to do it by means of an exposition of the Ten Commandments? That's a legitimate question. I'd like to explain to you why we do so. The Decalogue is a convenient and it is a unique summary of God's moral requirements. The Decalogue is a convenient and unique summary of God's moral requirements. Please notice that the Decalogue is not the only summary of the moral law that can be found in the Bible. There are many summaries of God's requirements in the Bible. Scholars such as C.G. Montefiore in the, in the book Rabbinic Literature and Gospel Teachings and Gustav Dahlman in Jesus Joshua Studies in the Gospels have pointed out that it was a commonplace among the rabbis to distinguish between heavy and light commands in the Old Testament. And Israel Abrahams, can you imagine a Jew having that name? Israel Abrahams wrote in his book Studies in Pharisaism in the Gospels that rabbinic efforts in this direction can be traced to the Old Testament itself, where the 613 precepts of the Old Testament, somebody had to be a diligent reader to be able to do that. Now, apparently there are 613 separate precepts in the Old Testament were summarized by different Old Testament authors, and I'd like to look at some of those summaries. According to the, um, the Jews, David summarized the law in Psalm 15 into, now I want to get this right, 11 principles. 
Let's read Psalm 15. Jehovah, who shall sojourn in thy tabernacle, who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Okay, now here's the summary of God's requirement then, to be right with God and to dwell with Him. He that walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart, slanders not his, with his tongue, does not evil to his friend, doesn't take up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, and who honors them that fear Jehovah, swears not to his own hurt and changes, puts not out his money to interest, does not take reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall not be moved. Do you understand? Then Psalm 15 has 11 principles that David uses to summarize the man who is righteous in the eyes of God. That is one way to summarize God's moral demand. On the other hand, Isaiah 33 verse 15 gives us six principles that summarize the law of God. Isaiah 33:15, He that walketh righteously and speaketh uprightly he that despiseth the gain of oppressions and shaketh his hands from taking a bribe, that stoopeth, I'm sorry, that stoppeth his ears from hearing of blood and shutteth his eyes from looking upon evil, he shall dwell on high. Okay, so there's all God's moral demands summarized in six principles by Isaiah the prophet. Micah summarizes these principles of the law into three principles. Micah 6, verse 8. He that showeth thee, O man, what is good, and what doth Jehovah require of thee? Okay, here's the summary. What does God want of us? To do justly, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with thy God. If you do those three things, you will have fulfilled God's requirement. Okay? So, David summarized the law in 11 principles. Maybe I should write this down. Okay? The 613 were summarized into 11 by David into six by Isaiah, into three by Micah, and we can go a little bit further. According to scholars, Amos summarizes it all into one principle in Amos 5, verse 4. For thus saith Jehovah unto the house of Israel, Seek ye me, and ye shall live. Okay, you want to know what God requires of you? Next time somebody says, What is the basic Christian biblical ethic? And the answer is, Seek the Lord. And whatever you're doing, if you're seeking the Lord, then you're pleasing Him. And, of course, Habakkuk uses one principle of summarizing what pleases God. Amos summarizes it into one, and Habakkuk summarizes it into one. In Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. You see what I'm trying to get at? There are a lot of summaries of the law. The 613 precepts into 11, into 6, into 3, into 1, in two different places. And it's against that background, you see, that somebody came to Jesus one day, and he said, Lord, which commandment is, quote, first of all? Which commandment is the great commandment of the law? I think it's unfortunate that we read that out of historical context. Because we then think that Jesus is some kind of pioneer. Jesus wants to do away with all the details. Isn't that terrible? All those 613 precepts, all legalism, that sort of thing. Jesus wants to get away from detail, and he just wants to summarize it into something easy. So Jesus is the great innovator. Well, that isn't at all what Jesus was doing. It was a well-known custom among, among the Jews to try to reduce all of that mass of material into smaller and smaller units to make it easier to remember. The whole point of asking about a weaker, uh, I'm sorry, about a weightier or a lighter matter of the law was to find what general precepts could be found to deduce all the others from them. Have you ever studied for a test and what you wanted to do is first of all organize your material so you got the basic categories and then you fill in the details? 
Well, that's basically what the uh, Jews were trying to do. They wanted to find out how they could summarize the law of God so that from that summary they could go and pull out all the details. It was a way of remembering and applying and living by the law. It was a well-known Old Testament practice. And so, by the way, you may like to know that Rabbi Akiba termed Leviticus 19.18, neighborly love, as the, quote, greatest principle in the law. All right, And by that he meant, from that principle all others can be deduced. In the same vein, then, when Jesus our Lord was asked, which commandment is first of all, Mark 12.28, which is the great commandment in the law, Matthew 22.36, he answered by picking out the extra decalogical commands about loving God, Deuteronomy 6, and loving one's neighbor, Leviticus 19. And then Jesus added these words, there is no other commandment greater than these, for on these two commandments the whole law hangs. See how that makes sense in terms of the Jewish way of thinking? The whole law hangs on these two commands. This is the way of summarizing the whole of the 613 precepts. And so when Jesus condemned the Pharisees, um, you notice he did not condemn them for keeping minor details, but rather for having left undone the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith, according to Matthew 23, and Luke 11:42 adds, the love of God. So there are many, many, many ways to summarize God's moral demand. We find all these Old Testament examples. Jesus, our Lord, summarized it into two love commandments. He also summarized it elsewhere. A lot of people think, well, we, we're to follow the love commands. They replace the Old Testament. Well, that just won't fit the teaching of Jesus because Jesus elsewhere summarizes all the law and prophets into one command. Somebody tell me now, what is that? No, that's love your neighbor as yourself and love the Lord your God are the two commands. Exactly. The golden rule, and another place Jesus says, all the law and prophets hang on this, do unto others what you'd have them do unto you. Does that mean that Jesus abrogated the two love commandments because he gave the golden rule? Well, nobody in his right mind thinks that. Those were varying ways of summarizing the Old Testament demand. And so also the fruit of the Spirit. You're to, do, you're to have the fruit of the Spirit because against these things there is no law. These things accord with the law of God. So my point is that there are many, many summaries of the law of God to be found in the Bible. The Decalogue, now coming to my point, the Decalogue is a convenient and indeed a unique way of summarizing God's moral demand. And um, I'll come back to this question next week, but I just want to take just the last couple minutes since we um, ended late here. I won't jip you out of those last two minutes. Let's look at the Decalogue in Exodus 20. I want to point out what I consider... Um, something very fascinating about the Ten Commandments, and I, I don't find it discussed by very many people. The Ten Commandments are not simply, in the most abstract and barren sense, law as we understand law today. You know, just do this and do that. The Ten Commandments are a very full exposition. Um, and I suppose to save time, I better not. I wanted to read them all and then go back and point out some things, but let me just point out those things. First of all, notice that if you'll read just the Decalogue, you will already see that God's law is modeled on God's own character. Verse 11 gives us that. Why should you keep the Sabbath? Because in six days Jehovah made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, Jehovah blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. Right within the Decalogue, we learn that the law is patterned after God's own nature. Uh, we see that in verse 5 as well. Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them, nor serve them. Why? For I, Jehovah thy God, am a jealous God. It's because of the kind of God I am that you should not do these things. You get the point? 
Already God tells us in his law, this law is a, as an expression of my character, an expression of my nature, and as such is unchanging. Secondly, notice the stern retribution which is built right into the law. Retribution is not an addendum to the law. Retribution is implicit in the law. Verse 7, Thou shalt not take the name of the Jehovah thy God in vain, for Jehovah will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Retribution is part of the law. It's not an addition to the law. It's not separate to it. It's not this plus that. It is implicit. Thirdly, let me, uh, I'm going to show you here on our triangle. I've just pointed out the standard. The standard is God's character and retribution is implicit in that. And you find that right in the Decalogue. Now I want to look at the other part of the triangle. Um, the consequences in goal. Verse 6 and verse 12. And showing loving kindness unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Verse 12. Honor thy father and thy mother that thy days may be long in the land which Jehovah thy God giveth thee. If you'll keep this law, there are consequences, blessed consequences that you can expect. And if you don't keep this law, then there will be the curse. Verse 5, Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them, nor serve them. For I, Jehovah thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, unto the third and upon the fourth generation of them that hate me. God will curse those who break his law. God will bless those who honor it. And so not only do we see the standard within this decalogical summary of God's moral requirement, we see the consequences. Now I'm going to go on and show that we also see the kind of people we should be. The motivational side of ethics is included as well. Look at verse 6. And showing loving kindness unto thousands of them that love me. You know, it really is a shame. I don't want to be polemical about this because it just really is a shame that so many dispensationalists have thought that the Old Testament was legalistic and the New Testament brings in love. Right there in the law, God says, I want your love. From the heart, I want you to care for me and to obey me. In fact, you can see then three angles of the triangle already in the Decalogue, you can also see that grace and law are not pitted against each other in the Decalogue. Verse 2, I'm Jehovah thy God who brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I've redeemed you, therefore keep these commandments. Look also at verse 6, and showing loving kindness unto those that love me and keep my commandments. So grace and law are not pitted against each other. Grace is right there within the law. It's my graciousness, my loving kindness that I show you. Uh, my sixth point, the law required inward purity over against Pharisaism, which was externalistic. The law already required an inward change. We see that and that God says, I want you to love me. It's right there in the Decalogue. But verse 17 makes it plain, doesn't it? Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, his maidservant, his ox, his ass, or anything that is thy neighbor's. Lust is prohibited right within the Ten Commandments then. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Seventhly, note about the Decalogue that it calls for responsibility to others. It calls for social responsibility. Verse 10. But the seventh day is the Sabbath unto Jehovah thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor the stranger that is within thy gates. You are responsible, you see, for others that they keep this law as well. So social responsibility is built right into the Decalogue. Eighthly, I only have two more points. Eighthly, the law applies to Jews and to Gentiles. It's not exclusively for a moral standard for the Jews. Verse 10. The seventh day is the Sabbath unto Jehovah thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. You see that sojourner who is within your gates? Even the Gentiles are to keep this law. 
And so it's not exclusively a Jewish standard. And then ninthly, the law is couched in the cultural language of Israel, and right in the Decalogue you learn that God expects you to extend it to further circumstances. Look at verse 17. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, and now all of a sudden it begins to sound very cultural. His manservant, his maidservant, his ox, or his ass. How many of you have those things? Manservants, maidservants, oxes, and asses, huh? That is the language of cultural Israel. But more importantly, not only is it couched in the language of Israel, notice that it is to be extended beyond what it says, or anything that is thy neighbor's. Okay, I'll give you some illustrations, God says. Don't covet his house, don't covet his wife, don't covet his oxen, or anything that is your neighbor's. See, once you learn what the law is getting at, God expects you to extend it to anything else as well that is covered. So let me go over these real quickly then, not, not citing all the points, but right from the Decalogue, we learn that the law is modeled on God's own character, that retribution is built right into it, that it, it covers consequences, it covers motive, it covers the graciousness of God. It requires inward purity. It calls for social responsibility. It applies to Jews and Gentiles. And one is expected to extend it to all circumstances to which it applies. You see how very unique this decalogical summary of God's moral requirement is? The next time somebody says, we don't want to keep all those laws, just the decalogue, go over those nine principles. And lo and behold, you'll find out that he's committed to the 613 other ones already.